Okay, we'll be in John chapter 12 today and we'll be reading concerning Mary anointing the feet of Jesus and where is she setting but at the feet of Jesus. And so as we look at John chapter 12, we want to begin by reading verses 1 through 11. John chapter 12, verse 1 through 11. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred denarii, and given to the poor? This he said not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and had the bag, and bore what was put in it. Then said Jesus, Let her alone, for the day of my burial hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Many people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Shall we pray? Loving Father, that you may bless the reading of your word, the ministry of it, and your Holy Spirit may take it to our hearts that we may learn and grow in the things of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we have a very interesting passage and one that we often come to um, about the time when we talk about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And we'd like to look at three areas here uh, this afternoon. First of all, under the uh, title, Mary Worships at Jesus' Feet. Mary Worships at Jesus' Feet. And uh, so first of all, Jesus is uh, prepared to have supper with them. He sups with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary while she anoints Jesus' feet. A most touching um, circumstance, uh, e- an event, which um, no doubt was quite impromptu, as far as the uh, the the house and the people around Mary. Uh, we aren't told that that uh, there was any knowledge of any of this going to happen. It just seems that Mary does this out of pure devotion for her Lord. Uh, secondly, Judas finds fault and reproves Mary. And uh, Judas, of course, he's the villain in the story. 
Interesting that the Lord has one among his group who is his enemy. A declared enemy, an unbelieving uh, disciple. One who sits at uh, the table with him. One who walks the streets of the Judean hills with him. One who no doubt sat with the feeding of the 5,000 probably observed all of the miracles that Jesus did and saw those things which were signs of his true messiahship and yet within his heart was the darkness of night that he would be willing to betray such a one that all the other disciples loved and Mary with this great devotion for her Lord. And so Judas finds fault and reproves Mary. And then Jesus reproves Judas for his complaint. For Jesus alone knew exactly why Mary would anoint him as she did. And the insight, of course, which the Lord has in this occasion is one which is from the Father. He knew what his mission was in life. He knew what he came to accomplish. He knew where he would go and how he would suffer and the things that he must bear in his body upon the tree. And, and Mary brings this oil of spikenard very costly and anoints him not knowing fully what would take place thereafter. And so upon her heart was the purity and the innocence of one who loved her Lord and devoted herself to the Lord Jesus Christ, who speaks much to us as we consider this account. So Jesus arrives at Bethany and has fellowship with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And of course all the other disciples are there. While he is there, Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, opens an alabaster box and pours it upon the feet of our Lord. This act of worship and adoration has become famous to bless the name of Mary for her great love for the Lord as well as to earn her a place of praise of Jesus. Our Lord makes this statement that she has done this against the day of my burial. And so um, Mary's devotion for the Savior overflows. She takes a flask of spikenard and uses it to anoint the feet of Jesus out of love and worship of her beloved friend, teacher, and master. And so as we look at this account, there is many things we can draw from it. And things perhaps that we aren't told why. But they are things which only speak of the love that Mary had for the Lord.
and the kind of love that we wonder would we sacrifice so much could we love so much for our Lord as Mary has demonstrated by this act you know the Bible is so wonderful it pitches these certain things that happen in it which are singular which are never repeated again and so would stand as an example to us and impress us so much that we have such admiration for the person who does it and it drives us to think would we do the same would we do the same and so think about that as we go through this this short brief account one which could be read very quickly and just kind of passed over but one which is very thought-provoking too as we look at it first of all Jesus takes supper at Bethany and is anointed by Mary therefore Mary worships at the feet of Jesus and it proves to be a monumental moment in the life of Christ monumental because this was done because Jesus was going to die on the cross and Mary knew nothing of it one of the thoughts about this oil of spikenard and its costliness is where did it come from how did Mary have such a valuable commodity at her disposal and of course we are told the narrative doesn't even tell us but it tells us the most important thing that Mary does this to worship the Lord you know when we think about culturally during the day what was the first appropriate thing that was done when somebody came into a home after being traveling on the Judean hillside the servants washed the feet of the guests and what does Mary do she goes well above and beyond what any servant would do she doesn't take mere water and sprinkle it upon the feet of Jesus to wash the dust from his his feet she takes the most costly thing that she possesses and she washes or anoints the feet of her Lord and and that in itself is just amazing should be just amazing to us when we stop and think about what she did where did this ointment come from some have speculated that this was though it is called an alabaster box or it might have been actually a flask of alabaster with this spike nut inside and it could have been uh, a burial anointment that was that perhaps she inherited to be used at the time of her funeral it could have been there is that we aren't told but the question arises it is so costly and so expensive 300 denarii one denarii was considered 
a day's wage, 300 denarii. Now this is like a fortune. It's like a fortune in a bottle. And Mary possessed it. Can you think for a moment what it would take to cause her to be so compelled to take this this ointment which was so expensive and use it to pour on the feet of Jesus. If it was her flask which was supposed to be used at her burial and to say nothing about where she obtained it because it would be like uh, an inheritance you could not possibly earn yourself in any short period of time. 300 denarii for this box of ointment or flask of ointment. And Mary takes it and, and pours it upon Jesus' feet. And so we find that the beginning of the text says that this was six days before the Passover came to Bethany. And it is considered by most that this might have been the last of the six days. In other words, Jesus came back to the region and it was six days before the Passover and this would have been the Passover which would mark the period of time when Jesus himself would be captured and from the Garden of Gethsemane and would be taken and the, those events would be unfolding which would ultimately propel him from a garden of prayer to a cross of persecution. And so we find that he is with his friends at this particular moment. The disciples are there. Lazarus is there. And as we look at the situation, we find that Martha is doing what she can to serve a meal. Verse 2, there, was, there they made him a supper, and Martha served but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. And so we find that uh, Martha is, well, she's, she's in the kitchen, we might say. And she's fixing the, the pita bread. She's making the, um, the meal, whatever that might have been. The grains or the wheat or the barley or the barley loaves or... Um, I'm not even sure culturally what they ate on an everyday basis, um, but it probably did consist of whatever they had uh, for the day and could be kept and preserved, and whether it be vegetable or, or meat that was preserved or those kinds of things. Well, you know what you have in the house on, an, on a daily basis, and you keep... You keep uh, in the refrigerator and so forth, and they had no refrigeration, and so much of what they, they had, had had to have a natural preservation to it, or a short term of, of that food commodity.
But she was out there, she was working diligently, she was trying to put it all together, the wine and the, and the bread and the whatever else they might have been eating for vegetables, and, and Lazarus was socializing. And we aren't really told what Lazarus was doing, but he was there at the table, so to speak. Uh, there they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with Jesus. With Jesus. And so Jesus uh, and probably Lazarus were talking. Uh, maybe Lazarus was talking to the other disciples. Um, there was some, some socializing going on. And isn't that what we do when we get together? Too? We, we fellowship, we talk together. We, and no conversation is too um, out of bounds, really. I mean... It, there were many things going on that Lazarus probably could talk about, uh, having recently been raised. Uh, we can only wonder at the subject matter, but he was he was socially involved. Martha was was domestically involved in the kitchen, and Martha was sitting at the feet of Jesus sitting at the feet of Jesus. In another place we find that Jesus says, after Martha complains to Jesus that Mary is, isn't, seem, isn't doing anything to help, Jesus says, she, that you are much encumbered, but Mary has the better part. And uh, and so we find that um, these three are principal players, if you will, within the household as these things began to unfold. And so the Passover is near at hand. It's thought perhaps this is on, on maybe Saturday. It might have been on Saturday that this was taking place. But yet we aren't told exactly all these events. Therefore the anointing of the Lord Jesus comes, as I said, perhaps quite impromptu. Maybe she came away that day thinking, well, the Lord is going to be with us. We don't know when they're going to capture him. He seems to slip in, out, in and out of danger quite often. He's been over in Perea, in the, uh, over across the Jordan. He's been trying to stay out of view of those who wanted to capture him. She's, perhaps she is thinking, what can I do? What can I do to comfort and console the Lord Jesus in all these activities that are going on how can I show my devotion to him and maybe she remembers I have, the, I have a flask of ointment wow no, I bet nobody else has this and I can take that and I can anoint Jesus with it 
And so we find these events occurring without telling us why or where these things came about, how they came about exactly. Verse 3 then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. And so Mary worships Jesus and Martha serves. And so the serving and worshiping, of course, are two different activities, aren't they? One is more intimate in nature and the other more dutiful to the work for the Lord. Now, I'm sure you've done, you've done both. You, you, you've served at times in, in those activities that, are consi- that you considered, well, this is my duty to do this. Uh, I'm, I have to do this. And there, uh, at other times, perhaps in you know, the quietness of a moment when you have opportunity to contemplate and to think about your relationship to the Lord, you enter into an act of worship before God. Or maybe even at church, you know, you take a special opportunity to, to consider the Lord and to look to the Lord in that moment of quietness when you have those moments. And you read the scripture and you pray and, and you're just thinking about the Lord and His great love and sacrifice for us. And so we find that um, there are times that we would enter into our worship and we know that our hearts have to be prepared and our hands have to be prepared to serve, whether we're serving or whether we're worshiping. Martha being the kind of a person who loved evidently to serve that she was involved in the kitchen. Lazarus was involved in fellowship, socializing. And Mary was sitting down, but her posture was at the feet of Christ. Now the posture of all three of these activities, of course, are different. When you think about serving, or socializing, or worshiping. All three postures are different. Now, Jesus was there in the house, amidst all of the three postures. But it's kind of like saying that the one that is most favored of the Lord is when we are sitting at his feet. Because he, the Lord, lifts up this activity that Mary is doing above the others. And, you know, I think perhaps we can see very easily why he would do that. You know, though the other activities are are good activities to be involved in, serving others or having fellowship with others, but worshiping is one of those activities that seems to be much more in line with 
how we how we come to the Lord and and uh, how we glorify Him. And probably more difficult when we think of the other two. The activity of of worshiping, when you stop and think about it, you say, well, how, how am I going to do this? Um, what should I do? How can I enter into this activity of worship? You know, and typically when we get together in a corporate setting, when we worship, we... We have hymnals and we have the scripture reading and we have prayer and we have a kind of a whole routine of things that we're involved in and we say we're coming together to worship. Let's all gather together. Let's be of one mind and one heart. Let's, let's worship together. And worship happens. Worship happens. But you see, even even in that cooperate setting, we we often, well, we have to have some structure to it, don't we? To know that it's happening. Because if we don't have that structure, we don't feel like we've accomplished it, really. But Mary does something which is very intimate. She does something very intimate. She, she becomes personal with Jesus. You know, you can think about Jesus sitting there in the home, and this was a time of supper, and so they were going to eat food together. They had, there's the disciples and a, quite a group of people there. And then there is Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And, and who, there may be other people involved here that we aren't seeing. And, but, but Martha becomes personal. She gets intimate with Christ. She, she gets right down at his, at his feet. While he is sitting... She lowers herself below him on the floor. And she gets as close, evidently, as she can to him at that lower end where his feet are. And she breaks open this flask and she pours it on his feet. And you can almost imagine the kind of the, um, the shock, perhaps, of everybody that is witnessing this. Judas is the only one that's saying anything, really. But that doesn't mean the others didn't have some sense of shock about all of this. What is she doing? She's pouring this ointment on, on his feet. And, and she is doing this out of pure devotion to Jesus. Now that, to me, that's really hard to translate into how I would respond if I was in that case. It's really hard for me to translate that and say, what would I do? What have I done? Have I ever, ever come close to that in my relationship to the Lord? And, but Mary is, is in this posture of worship, of humility before the Lord, and of worship before Him, and of literally pouring out everything she owned. If this was an inheritance that she had received, and that it was worth 300 denarii, 
She's taking everything that she possessed and she is pouring it out on Jesus. Perhaps her posture of humility was saying to Jesus, Lord, other servants stoop to wash the feet of their guests, but Lord, I will wash and anoint your feet with this costly perfume of spikenard, for you are all together lovely. I looked up that phrase because I happened to think about it when I was putting these thoughts together. And it comes out of Songs of Solomon, chapter 5 and verse 16. And all of the old classics, such as those preachers of bygone years, most of them took the Song of Solomon and they said, this is the picture of Christ. Solomon is, is Christ, and this Shumanite woman is his, not only his beloved, but she is his beloved. Her beloved. And this is a picture of Christ and the church. And today not many commentators take that view because they, well, I guess maybe it's too much of a stretch for them. But the old, the old preachers did. And I tend to say, even if they're spiritualizing songs of Solomon to say this, it's worth it to say it because we ought to make Jesus our beloved we ought to have that kind of worship toward him and in Psalm, Solomon uh, Songs of Solomon it says this is my beloved and this is my friend O daughters of Jerusalem and of course it's the setting is a very intimate setting in the book of Song of Solomon. But here is Mary. She is also in a very intimate posture with Jesus. Sitting right down in great humility at his feet. And pouring out everything she owned. And filling not only his body with the fragrance of the spikenard but filling the whole room with this fragrance of spikenard. When we truly come before Jesus and worship him as a group of people, shouldn't it fill the room? Shouldn't it encompass all that are there? I mean, does worship truly happen? unless there is great glory and praise and adoration toward God? Does it happen at all? We, we would have to say unanimously, no, it doesn't happen until we're all doing it together when we come together cooperatively. Well, here is Mary. It seems like she has become the catalyst of what it meant to worship the Lord Jesus in a cooperate group. From her and her act of worship permeated literally the whole house and affected everybody.
it affected everybody. Worship is supposed to do that to us too. If we enter into worship as we should, it should affect everybody. In fact, it seems like that's when real revivals have taken place. It's when such working of the Spirit of God has moved upon a people that everybody is so greatly affected by it that there is a revival, a refreshing, a renewal within the hearts and lives of people and they cannot contain themselves. Uh, I suppose we could call this Mary's little revival. <laughs> but she was definitely worshiping the Lord. So Matthew Poole says of Jesus, His mouth is most sweet, which was said before, in other words, in Songs of Solomon 5.13, and is here justly repeated, because it was a principal part of Christ's beauty, and the chief instrument of a spouse's comfort and happiness which wholly depends upon his sweet and excellent speeches, his holy precepts and gracious offers and promises contained in the gospel, he is altogether lovely not to run out into a more particulars. In one word, there is no part of him which is not exquisitely beautiful. There is no part of Jesus which is not exquisitely beautiful. He is altogether lovely. In Psalm 34.2 it says, My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. In 1 Corinthians 1.31, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. In Proverbs 18.24, a man that hath friends must show himself friendly, and there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. In Colossians 1.19, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. There is no part of Jesus which is not altogether lovely, which is not altogether beautiful. That is why the Shumanite woman could say of her beloved that she loved him. And if Solomon truly is the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, then he believed that she also was most beautiful. And he loved her. And here is Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. Well, oh, we know that Jesus loved Mary. It goes without saying we know that. For God is love. And Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. And every act of humility that Christ did was to show his love. Yes, Jesus loved Mary. And Mary's act of devotion to Jesus was out of love as well. A most intimate act of love and devotion and worship. One which surpasses perhaps anything 
that anyone has ever done. And Mary did that. A single act in Scripture, which was not repeated, and which was underscored by the Lord, that she would forever be remembered for it. That's how great an act of devotion Mary's love was to Jesus. Secondly, Judas Iscariot finds fault and reproves her. And uh, here we see in verse 4, Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who should betray him, and it's very clearly identified who it is, why was not this ointment sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? From this we understand that evil men do not sacrifice to worship Jesus. Evil men do not sacrifice to worship Jesus. And Judas is, he is kind of like the epitome of that one person who stands out in biblical history, who is at enmity with God, who is at enmity against his son, and who perpetrates the greatest betrayal in human history that we have within the history of the church. Complaints and miserly treatment are the norm when intimate worship and sacrifices want to be made. I'll read that one more time because I think it pertains to the church. Complaints and miserly treatment are the norm when intimate worship and sacrifices want to be made. If we take Mary's intimate worship as an example of what it really means to sacrifice and worship the Lord Jesus Christ, and we should, let us think about the many complaints that are often made against the church against a body when, when, an, when an act of intimate sacrifice by the church is want to be made. When the church wants to support somebody for missions. When the church wants to reach out and spend money to evangelize a community. When the church wants to in some way spread the gospel of Christ by intent, by intent, and others within the church say it costs too much money. You shouldn't be spending money like that. We ought to save it to put a new furnace in. We ought to save it because we're going to need it sometime down the road. We ought to use God's money more wisely than to give it to missionaries in a foreign field. Complaints and miserly treatment are the norm when intimate worship and sacrifices want to be made. And the reason I can say that because I've heard it a number of times in my ministries that I have been in. 
And it's kind of like people don't even know what they're saying. We ought to be very careful about hoarding God's money and not spending it where it needs to be spent to further the gospel of Christ. Why do you waste the ointment? This perhaps is what Judas is saying. Why do you waste the ointment? It could be sold and the money would be 300 denarii. If one denarii is one day's wage, then 300 denarii is truly a fortune. Why do you waste this money? You can almost hear Judas snarling at Mary when she's down at the feet of Jesus and she's pouring this ointment on her beloved. And you can almost hear Judas in the background with his his miserly, sniveling, conniving, thieving complaint against Mary. When somebody is complaining and sniveling about using the Lord's money to do something to honor God, you can always pick it up pretty quick. I'm not talking about you people. I know you love the Lord. I'm just kind of complaining myself against some of these things that you know is true. And it's good for us just to think about that a little bit. Because it can jog our spiritual conscience so that when the opportunity comes to do something, our first, our first thought is, yes, let's do it. Let's see if we can really make a difference in this community. Let's see if we can reach people. Let's see if we can win some to Christ. We don't need to save the whales. We need to save the lost. There are enough humanitarian people to go out there and save the whale and to preserve some shark on a beach somewhere. Those people were dying without Christ that we need to be concerned about. Mary had no small worship for the Lord Jesus and she used it all. She didn't take half of that one pound, she used the whole pound. Once she opened the bottle, she poured the whole thing. Once she entered into the worship, she was without reserve concerning her love for the Lord. She just gave it all. And the fragrance was so wonderful, she says, I'll just take my hair and wipe his feet. I won't bother to wash the floor. I'll wash his feet and take my hair and soak up all of the ointment in my hair and then all of this ointment and fragrance will just permeate the whole house. Do you see something here about really sacrificing for Christ? It doesn't stay in a singular way to the thing that we are doing that there are greater effects of this kind of worship. And so, when you begin to do true worship, it just multiplies. It just has an effect which translates into wonderful things all around you.
all of a sudden the community begins to realize that this church cares all of a sudden that people who are unsaved realize that somebody loves them all of a sudden when you give your all for Jesus people know that you are truly dedicated and are true, truly believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the effects of Mary's anointing Jesus' feet had manifold influences all about her. The only one who didn't particularly care for it was Judas. But then we know what he really was. He was a betrayer. He was a thief. Oh Lord. He was the treasurer! <laughs> you know, sometimes I suppose the treasurer can get the blunt end of the sword, you know. Um, but the story is told of this preacher who took on a new church and wanting to make the right move and then in the church and realizing of the things that he had experienced in other churches he said to the deacons he says if you don't support me 100% you're all fired I'm going to find a new deacon board and he began to lay out exactly what he expected from his deacons that they would be godly men they would support the work of the ministry that they would follow the precepts of Christ, that they would live in humility and in true servanthood as the deacon is supposed to, that they would keep their houses in order, and that they would lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, if you're not going to be what a true deacon is, I'll fire you all. I'll send you all packing. And then he turned to the treasurer and he says, you know, it's your job to write the checks for the church. And I said, if I spend every nickel in this church for the Lord, and you're down to the last check and I ask you to write it, I want you to write it, will you do it? Yes. Will you do it? If, we, if there isn't another nickel in the, in the checkbook and I ask you to write the last check and, this, and it'll take everything out of the checkbook and I ask you to do it for the Lord, will you do it? See, that's the, that's the only job of the treasurer. It's just to write the checks. It isn't the treasurer's money. It's the Lord's money. The Lord's church is supposed to govern the whole arena of the church. The pastor, the deacons, the elders. You can't have a stingy treasurer. No, you must have a spiritual one. The one who was on board to, with the pastor, just like the deacons and the elders are on board with the pastor. Well, he wanted to prove his, his new church. And of course, they, they willingly complied.
and he was off to a good start. There were no inhibitions. Everybody was on the same page. And so Mary had no small amount of worship for Jesus. And neither should we. The third thing that we see here, and I'll look at this rather quickly if I can in the third section, Jesus reproves Judas for his complaint. And so, as we look at this last area here, in verse 7, Then said Jesus, Let her alone, for the day of my burial has she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. And so Jesus uh, speaks out, seeing the devotion of Mary and the true worship she had, and Jesus knowing exactly why this is done, going to the very omniscience of God, because obviously Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the disciples only had a small a part of the picture. And Jesus says, Judas, shut up. You're speaking out of turn. If you really want to know what's important here, Mary is doing this because I'm going to die soon for the sins of the world. I'm going to be persecuted and suffer. The Lamb of God is going to take his place on the cross. And you know nothing of it. And the poor that you seem to be so concerned about are, are always with you. You cannot earn enough money to elevate the poor out of poverty. Now remember, Jesus was well aware of how that the widows and the orphans and the children were to be cared for by the Jewish people. But of course they had fallen down on that count. And Judas wanted to use this, this um, appeal to humanitarianism as a reason not to worship Jesus. But we stop and think about it today. That argument is used a lot, isn't it? A great appeal to humanitarianism. You have to feed the poor. Well, there's been starving in Maine for many years now. And still, they're starving. And there's food pantries in every church. And there's clothing barns in the back of every building. And there are food drives and there are fundraising and you can run a race to just about fund anything you want to run a race for. And you can dump ice cubes on your head and fund whatever cause you want to. Or you can swim the English Channel. Anything in, uh, in social society you want to support, there's a way to do it. 
Well, I'd just like to say that is not the goal of the church. Not to say that they aren't all good things. Good to feed people. You can start a soup kitchen. And many churches have. Well, Charles Haddon Spurgeon in England, the Prince of Preachers, he had many orphanages and many charities. But he didn't stop his preaching and he didn't stop evangelizing and he didn't stop using those things which he was doing as a parachurch ministry to reach people for Christ. And so if you can come up with a way to win people by giving them some soup, then I'm all for it. But if you just want to go out there and feed people for the sake of feeding somebody, uh, not so much. There's plenty of organizations already doing that. And so we find that Jesus had something to say to Judas. Take your little bag of money, Judas, and stuff it in your pocket because you're not getting this 300 denarii. And not only that, Judas, you have the wrong motive in your heart altogether because you are a thief and a betrayer. And I can't count on you when the, when the going gets tough. And if you get a chance, you're going to betray me with a kiss. And so we find that Jesus rebukes, reproves Judas for what he has said. Because Jesus knows the real story. He knows the story behind the story. He knows what's going on. And this always kind of points up one important truth. God knows more about what he purposes through his church than the church does. The church is supposed to carry out the work of the ministry that God impresses upon his people. We have to be spirit-led and filled to know it and to do it. Otherwise, we become a bunch of complainers who are not willing to take the, the pittance that God has given to us and use it for his honor and glory. And so Mary, uh, Judas reproves, uh, Jesus reproves Judas for this, this complaint. Verses 7 through 9, many people, verse 9, many people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also whom they had raised from the dead. Well, see, here's the fickle nature of the crowd again, isn't it? There were other people who knew what was happening in that home that day. That there was this gathering, that Jesus was there, that Lazarus was there. And they wanted to come not only to see Jesus, but to see Lazarus. But then the more sinister side of this is that the chief priests knew as well. The arch enemy of our Lord the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus to death. They were in the background whispering, how are we going to kill him? 
We not only want to get rid of this Jesus, let's kill Lazarus too. Let's see if we can get rid of them both. Let's make an end to this thing. Just when we think that everything is going good, we find the enemy is just around the corner, eavesdropping, listening in, observing what's going on, and plotting a way to perpetrate their betrayal. Mark my words, the world is eavesdropping on the church. The world is just around the corner, perpetrating what it can do to betray the church of Jesus Christ. And you see, they want to destroy the church too. Just like they wanted to destroy Jesus. So keep your ears and your hearts open to the Lord and look around you and realize what's happening and know the better place to be. It's down at Jesus' feet. Because for Mary's part, she found a place of monumental blessing to glorify the Lord because of her one act of worship. Well, that's worth thinking about, isn't it? Shall we pray? Loving Father, we do thank you for the thoughts today out of this passage and ask, Lord, that you will speak to our hearts through it and pray, Lord, that we will seek the better part no matter what the sacrifice is, Lord, may we be willing to do it for Jesus. May we be willing to enter into what is true and intimate worship before the Lord. May we, we realize that as we enter into that worship and perform that act and to do that thing which is most glorifying to the Lord, only the Lord knows the, the full end of what we do. We only see a small portion of it. We only see the pouring out of the flask. We only see the ointment that is given. We do not see the full extent of that worship, but it would redound to the glory of God because Jesus would die for the sins of the world. Father, bless your word and your spirit to work in our own hearts that we may worship you as we should. In Jesus' name, amen.